Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Apologetics Part 9, Old Testament Transmission. What reasons do we have for believing the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, was reliably transmitted from antiquity to today? This lecture provides four arguments. One, Jewish scribes were competent. Two, people memorized large portions of the text. Three, the consequences for false prophecy. And four, the Dead Sea Scrolls function as a time capsule. The Old Testament, in fact, is excellently preserved, especially in comparison to other ancient texts. If you would like to take this class for credit, please contact the Atlanta Bible College so you can register and do the necessary work for a grade. Here now is Apologetics Part 9, Old Testament Transmission. We had some recording problems on this lecture. One of the students had reviewed the practices of the Sofarim, which is the Hebrew word for scribes, and had discussed how they meticulously copied the text from year to year. It turns out that the earliest complete manuscripts of the Old Testament are what are called Masoretic texts, composed by the Masoretes, a group of Jewish scribes between the year 500 and 1000. The, uh, the two Masoretic texts we have are Codex Leningrad and Codex Aleppo. Uh, those are the two main ones that are complete. The Masoretes were incredibly focused on accuracy. For example, consider this quotation by Neil Lightfoot. He says, They numbered the verses, words, and letters of each Old Testament book they counted the number of times each letter was used in each book. They noted verses that contained all the letters of the alphabet, or a certain number of them. They calculated the middle letter, the middle word, the middle verse of the Pentateuch, the middle verse of the Psalms, the middle verse of the entire Bible, and so forth. In fact, they counted almost everything that could be counted. These Masoretes not only knew exactly how many letters there were in the Pentateuch, but they also knew the middle word and the middle letter. And they would compare each scroll to a master, and if there was an error, they would throw it out and start over again. Scribes in ancient Israel, in the time of the Masoretes, and long before that, in the time of the Tanaim and the Sophorim before them, scribes in ancient Israel, we see this in the time of Jesus as well, were a were an honored class of people. They were an important group of people. You couldn't become a scribe just willy-nilly. You had to be in training until the age of 30. It was a noble profession. And they took it very seriously. The ancient Jews, Jesus among them, believed that the scriptures that they had, what we call the Old Testament, was from God, that it was God speaking to them. And that very easily explains why they were so focused on accuracy and they were so concerned with getting it right without changing it, without allowing errors to creep into it. 
these Hebrew scribes throughout the centuries were concerned about memorization, so they made an effort to visually confirm every letter rather than just copy from memory. And from everything that we can see, they did a very good job at it. And we'll speak a a little bit more about this in a minute. You know what they did with Bibles, with ancient Hebrew scrolls, when they wore out? No, they didn't burn them. They buried them. They buried them. In fact, they still do that to this day. When you're done with your Bible, you bring it to the synagogue, and the synagogue collects them. And when they have enough, they do a ritual ceremony, and they bury them. And they've been doing that for a really long time. Because they think it's sacred. They don't, they're not just going to put it in a landfill. Oh, they give it a burial. They give it a burial. Yeah. This sounds a little off topic, but like, isn't the Word of God living and whenever it's in this book on ink and pages, it's really not living until it's lived out by ink? Why would you? I don't know. That just, it boggles me like somebody would be. Well, whether you agree with it or not is what they did. It's so, they did. <laughs> yeah, they probably wouldn't draw such a strong distinction between the living scripture and the dead scripture. They would say, this is what God gave us. Why wouldn't we treat it? If it came from God, why wouldn't we treat it with respect? And you know what? A lot of people died to get the Bible into English, too. I'm just going to go ahead and preach a little here. I don't put my Bible on the ground, you know, and I'm not superstitious. I don't think God's going to strike me dead if I do it. But I don't know. I try to treat it with respect. I don't wash my hands to say a prayer every time or something like that. But I try to be respectful towards the Bible because I recognize both what it is and uh, how much people sacrifice to get it into my hands. And I know the story a lot more than a lot of other people do because I study this kind of stuff. What were you going to say? Same thing you did, but you know, we, I'm sure none of us would, right after we eat it with our hands, go touch our Bible. We treat it with some degree of respect and care. Uh-huh. Yeah. And some people won't write in their scriptures, but I love writing in the scriptures. So, you know, go figure. I, maybe I'm a contradiction. <laughs> <laughs> the idea is that it's a sacred text. The Sofarim had all these crazy rules, and they did a really good job uh, preserving it. Obviously, it's not perfectly preserved, so there is this field called textual criticism and that is the field where they compare the manuscripts and they try to get back to the original and anytime they're not sure about which way it is they put a footnote have you ever noticed footnotes in your bible and you're like some manuscripts read blah 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 that's that's what that is so the problem is not that we don't have the original it's that Sometimes we're not sure which of the options the original is. And these are, these are like uh, Jacob said, these are minor things almost always. It's not like you're going to have a variation and discover that, you know, Abraham was really a homosexual. And it's like, oh, wow, that changes everything. No, it's not going to be like that. It, it, the, the variant's going to be like some city is really spelled this other way with like an I in it as opposed to without an I in it. You know what I mean? Those are the kind of level of variations you typically find. Uh, Not that they're all completely insignificant, but the vast majority are. All right, so that's the scribal argument. The proof of the scribal argument comes back to the Dead Sea Scrolls because, you know, if these guys are doing such a good job copying, you can compare it against the Dead Sea Scrolls, and when they do that, they find that it is very accurate. Memorization argument. 
What do you do when you're driving a car and in front of you the school bus stops? What if you're driving the other way towards the school bus and you see the school bus stop and the lights flash? It's not divided. How do you all know that rule, that law? Yeah. Because that's part, of, that's part of your world. It's something that you have to do, right? It's something that other people do. It's really hard to forget something that you live out in real life, right? If I asked you to come up here and, oh, let's pick something from math. Add two mixed fractions. How many of you would competently get up here and do it? There's a few of you and you're like, yeah, fractions were awesome. And like the rest of you are like, I haven't used that since whatever grade, and I didn't like it then, right? Why? Because you don't live adding fractions on a regular basis. That's not part of your world, so you forget how to do it. Things you live out, you remember because they're part of your life, right? Like if I ask you, is it a law, are you allowed to drive and talk on the cell phone at the same time? Here. Yes. You know why Denise knows that confidently? She's been living here for a long time, and she would know if they changed the law, right? In other states, the law is different. Like in New York State, if you do that, you're going to get a ticket. In Missouri, yeah. So what ends up happening with the scriptures? Think about, think about if you're a Jew living under the Old Testament law. You're going to memorize large tracts of the law because why? You live it out. It's your way of life. You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Like when you read the part in Leviticus that says what kinds of food you can't eat, you forget it by the time you get to the next chapter. However, if you're preparing dinner every night, let me tell you, you know those rules because it's, you live it out. You see what I'm saying? So they ended up memorizing large chunks of Scripture because it was the law and they lived it out. I want to just take a look at a couple of scriptures, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, and 11, 18 to 21. We'll take a look at those. Uh, whose turn is it to read? All right, let's start in the back. Denise? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today should be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. How were they instructed to, to treat the law? And not, what I mean by the law is like the way of life that Moses gave them. Yeah, it's supposed to be in your mind. It's supposed to be on your, on your lips, right? That, that the, the words you say would be teaching, would be speaking the, the, the words of God that are contained in this part of the Bible. You would be putting it on, as a sign on your hand, on the frontals of your forehead. You will write it on the doorpost of your house. You're supposed to talk about it with your children, right? So memorization is not just something that happened like accidentally because they lived it out. It was also a commandment within the law itself that you're supposed to teach the next generation the law. You're supposed to teach them. And the law is the, the first chunk of the Old Testament. You know? Melvin, could you read us Deuteronomy 11, 18, and 19? You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul. And you 
find them as they sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall teach them to your sons, talking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you rise up. That's like everything, right? It says, talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you rise up. This is a Bible culture. It's hard to find ways to compare it. There are some Christian communes that are probably like this, where they're just like always reciting scripture to each other, right? Or there are some traveling musical groups that we know that sing scripture to each other. Dan and I met this, this, this family. <laughs> <laughs> it was just something. We were, we were sitting there in this Wednesday Bible study. We, go, we have this Wednesday lunchtime Bible study at our church, Living Hope Community Church. Great place to go. And um, a little plug for myself. And uh, so we're, th- we're sitting there at the Wednesday noon Bible su- study, and this, this family had come into town, and there were, there were seven of them, two adults, five kids, two parents, five kids. They had other kids that weren't there. Anyhow, so they're like dispersed around the room. We're sitting around in a like a rectangle shape of these tables and we're studying 1 John. And uh, you know, we were like, I don't know, an hour into it. And my dad turns to them and says, hey, you guys have a song about this verse. And they literally broke out into song. All of them at once in perfect harmony. And there was no like person blowing the harmonica to get the note. It was just like, boom, right there all at once. And they sang the song and Dan and I felt crazy awkward because we're <laughs> cynical and callous New Yorkers and uh, our, our hard hearts were melted by the love of their <laughs> song. But anyhow, so there are cultures, but this, this was a biblical culture. The, the, the ancient Israelites, this was what it was about. They did not have movies. They did not have TV shows. They did not have social media. What did they do for fun? They told the stories about the people of God. They recited the scripture. They memorized scripture. They encouraged each other with scripture, right? It was their life. Bible trivia, yeah. They asked questions and it had answers, right? Now imagine somebody comes along and they want to change the scripture. Are they going to know? Yeah. I mean, if it's some little minor change where you're going to update the name of a place because we don't call it this anymore and now we call it that, maybe they argued about it, but, you know, they figured out, you know. But, like, if suddenly you change the rule where now it's Friday instead of Saturday where you're supposed to rest, there's no way you're going to get away with that. Why? Because they believe it's a sacred text. And so they're not going to let you get away with changing. So in, in other words, they would notice because they memorized large portions of the scriptures, they, they uh, lived it out and they taught it to the next generation, they would notice changes. So you have a society that is in touch with scripture and they're going to notice changes, right? That's something significant that people don't usually talk about, that the culture would fight against rampant changes seeping into the text. And then there is this seriousness of the prophetic office, right? Seriousness of the prophetic office. This is Deuteronomy 18, 14, and then 20 to 22. In reverse order, we go to Jesse next. For those nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and 
and to diviners, but as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. Verses 20 to 21. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, the prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, how will we know the, the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if, it, if the thing does not come about or come true, that thing which the Lord has not spoken, the prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you shall not be afraid. I call this short-term authentication. So a prophet is going to say, Thus says the Lord, such and such is going to happen. Deuteronomy 18 encourages the people to say, how do I know you're a real prophet? Basically ask them for something that's going to come true. And you know what happens if what they prophesy doesn't come true? They're labeled a false prophet and they are executed for speaking in the place of God when God has not spoken. False prophets executed right so it's a serious thing it's not like a tv preacher today who gets up there and says jesus is coming back on may 18th and then jesus doesn't come back and everyone just kind of moves on with their lives do you realize that there was just a recent prediction in september of this year september was it 13 or 14 and then again in october when the eclipse happened and then I, you know, and probably every other pastor in the land got a bunch of emails from a bunch of knuckleheads who were convinced that these knuckleheads were true prophets. So false prophets would be executed. Now I want to just tell you a little bit about the Dead Sea Scrolls so that you're informed about them. Discovered between 1947 and 1956. That's when people found, you know what the Dead Sea Scrolls, does anybody know the story of the Dead Sea Scrolls? They were dead in a sea. Some kid threw a rock into a cave. No, he was chasing after a goat or something. Somebody was looking for a goat in a very dry desert region with these huge cliffs that had caves in them. And he threw a rock into a cave to scare out the goat he was looking for. And he heard a smash sound of a clay pot bursting, right, of shattering. And so then he went in and he found these ancient pieces of Hebrew writing and did what any good uh, person in Israel, Israel does when they find such a thing. Yeah. He went and found a buyer and sold it to somebody <laughs> on the antiquities market. Then there was this great competition between the legitimate archaeologists who are trying to find more scrolls in the different caves and the Bedouin shepherds who are trying to get there first so they could sell it to, to the archaeologists, right? And there's this big competition, and they end up finding 11 caves with these hidden Old Testament and other kind of Hebrew writings in them. This all happened between 1947 and 1956. What they ended up finding was 850 distinct documents. 30% of these are fragments of the Hebrew Bible like little bits and pieces of the Old Testament. 25% of them are traditional Jewish religious texts, books like Enoch and Levi and so on. They're Jewish texts, but they're not considered at the same authority 
or inspiration as the actual Bible. Okay? And then 30% are co biblical commentaries or community-relevant writings, the famous one of which is called the Community Rule, which outlines how that community functioned that was copying and keeping and taking care of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then 15%, they don't know what they are. So when I say biblical commentaries, does that mean like the Talmud? Or? Oh, Meister has this on page 131. Let's flip there really fast. So biblical commentaries means they're reading the Old Testament text and then they're writing what they think it means. So it's their own commentaries. Is that, wasn't that what the Talmud was? Uh, yeah. Yeah. But this is different than the Talmud. Yeah. I missed the 15% still unidentified. Why are they unidentified? Oh, so a lot of times they ended up just getting little scraps of paper that with just a few words on them or letters, and they just have no idea how they fit into the jigsaw puzzle of all these documents. All right, page 131. You see where it says the Dead Sea Scrolls? Oh, there's the guy's name. In 1947, a young Bedouin shepherd boy named Muhammad Adib wandered into the area where the caves were located in search of a lost goat from his flock. All right, flip over to 132. You see the dates there? They did carbon-14 tests, and they dated them between 250 B.C. and A.D. 70. So, I mean, these are just like, it's just a huge find. It's, it's awesome. You should, you should read the wiki article on it. All right. Do you know how they actually date ancient writings? Yes, how they form the letters. Yeah, it's called paleography. That's what they do is they look at the style of writing and they compare it to other writing from the same period and they're like, hey, that's a second century document. It's not based on carbon-14 dating usually. On to the next thing. All right, so you don't have to write this down, but I just want to show you this. This is what is in the Dead Screws. Dead, dead Screws. Dead Sea Scrolls. For the Bible, they have at least 18 copies of Genesis, 8 copies of Exodus, 17 copies of Leviticus, 12 copies of Numbers, 31, maybe up to 34 copies of Deuteronomy, 2 copies of Joshua, Judges 3, Samuel 4, Kings 3, Isaiah 22, Jeremiah 6, Ezekiel 7. What do you see here? What would you say? Deuteronomy and Isaiah. You see that? Deuteronomy has 31, Isaiah has 22, and then you have other parts of the law, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus that are, that are really high. Not so much with Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, or even Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And then the 12 is like those other smaller prophets, shorter prophets. They were probably regular-sized people. But, um, and then the Psalms. Look at Psalms. 39. With the other one, it was, uh, what, 33? 31 for Deuteronomy, 39 for the Psalms. So, I mean, they really love the Psalms, right? These are like copies. Of These are different copies of Psalms, yeah. Proverbs, they had two copies, Job 4, Song of Solomon 4, Ruth 4, Lamentations 4, Ecclesiastes 3, Esther, 0. Esther is the only book of the Old Testament that the Dead Sea Scrolls did not contain even a fragment copy of which I don't think necessarily means anything, but I think it is on the quiz, so you might want to write it down. <laughs> and then number one is Psalms, right? And then after that you had Deuteronomy and then Isaiah, top three as far as what they had copies of, right? Which tells us a lot about what parts of the Old Testament they used. The Dead Sea Scrolls prove that the scribal argument is valid because they function as a uh, time capsule. 
a complete copy of the book of Isaiah was discovered. Not just a fragment, but the whole thing. In fact, there's a website you could go to right now and see the Isaiah scroll. Who's with me? All right, I got one hand. There it is. Should we watch this guy? Maybe he's got something good to say. You are in very special place. Right now, you are at the Holy of Holies of the Shun of the Book, where the Dead Sea Scrolls are kept. Let's see. Come with me. I am about to show you our Mona Lisa, the most important cultural treasure of the Jewish nation is the Great Isaiah Scroll, the second largest scroll discovered in Qumran Caves, containing all the 66 chapters of the prophet Isaiah you have in our Bibles. Take a look at the manuscript. This is the real Isaiah Scroll. It has 2,100 years, and you can read from it. Hazon Ishayahu ben Amoz, Asher Chazali Yerushalayim, Al Yehuda, the vision of the prophet Isaiah, mentioning the city of Jerusalem, the same city that today is located the shrine of the book, and wherein the Isaiah scroll is on display. I invite you to read the same words from the Bible on the internet version, and to enjoy the content of the prophet Isaiah. That's crazy, right? Have you guys seen pictures of the Shrine of the Book? The what? Shrine of the Book? My goodness, are you on the same planet as me? This is the museum where they keep the Dead Sea Scrolls in Israel that you can visit. The museum is shaped like a clay pot because that's what the scrolls were found in. I think it's in Jerusalem. And so you go and it's, there's special lighting so that the, the ink doesn't wear off on the, the scrolls and there are special temperature and atmospheric controls so that, and everything's behind glass, but you can get right up on it and you can see. If you can read Hebrew, then you can even um, understand what it is you're looking at. Around the perimeter of it, they have these cases where they have different scrolls. I mean, there's like 800 something documents, probably not all of them on display, but some of the more impressive ones are. And they will probably even take these scrolls on the road and have exhibits sometimes. That's pretty cool. Well, anyhow, I encourage you to play with that website. Uh, if you look up Isaiah Scroll, you will find it. Okay? Yes. There was a slide that said that Dead Sea Scrolls proved interesting. The scribal argument, right? So the scribal argument is that they considered it a sacred text. They did a good job copying it. Well, what we can do is we can compare these manuscripts to these old manuscripts, especially what the one they do it on is the Isaiah Scroll because it's so intact, right? So I'm about to make that point right now. A complete copy of the book of Isaiah was discovered. It compared with only the slightest variations to modern copies, nothing that changed the meaning of the text. Do you realize what that means? That means that over a thousand years of copying that scroll, generation after generation after generation, no significant change. You know, there would be little variations, but they weren't significant variations that changed in that Isaiah scroll. This is what F.F. Bruce, a famous scholar, said about the discovery. The new evidence confirms what we had already good reason to believe, 
that the Jewish scribes of the early Christian centuries copied and recopied the text of the Hebrew Bible with the utmost fidelity. So in other words, they were faithful about it. Do we have any questions? So no New Testament wrote that one. We're going to do New Testament tomorrow. Basically, what I want to do tomorrow is look at Old Testament trustworthiness. So for that, I'm going to look at archaeology a lot and some other stuff that uh, you may or may not have heard of. Essentially, what I intended to do with this lecture was just to establish the text itself. Just because I'm able to establish that the transmission of the text is reliable does not mean that what it says is true. Right? If I wrote pigs fly and then 3,000 years later somebody else finds it and they can verify that it is an accurate transmission of what I actually wrote, doesn't mean that pigs actually fly. Right? It just means that what I wrote they actually have. Okay? This is all related to transmission. Tomorrow we'll talk about trustworthiness and get into that. Yeah? That's where my question was more like, uh, there's a lot of theories and scholarships out there that you know, pretty much base the entire Hebrew text off of exilic, like in exilic times where they just base most of their stories and things off of Babylonian stories, you know, like most of the Hebrew ideas came from ancient, other ancient Near East stories. Uh -huh. Well, I think if you, if you find something similar, it, it doesn't mean, I think it's a lot harder to prove dependence. All right, so like if we want to talk about the Gilgamesh epic, for example, which compares to, isn't that the one that compares to the flood of Noah? Yeah. yeah. You have a flood story among non-Jewish people, then you have a flood story among Jewish people. Does that mean that the Jewish people copied the other people? Not necessarily. It could be the other way around, or it could be that there actually was a flood and you find echoes of it among different cultures. Just because other documents are comparable doesn't necessarily prove dependence. I want to see somebody make a hard case proving dependence before I even have to deal with that objection. Furthermore, the Code of Hammurabi, for example. Code of Hammurabi is an ancient law code, and people want to make the case that, well, the law code that we find in the Old Testament that is attributed to Moses, that that is somehow ripping off the Code of Hammurabi. All right, make a case. I want to hear a case. Just because you have one document and another document and they're both law codes and they're both old and they both have a couple things in common, I should hope they have a couple things in common. I should hope that both societies thought stealing was wrong and murder was wrong. But if you compare the details, they completely diverge. Hammurabi's not keeping the Sabbath or eating clean foods or worshiping Yahweh or telling that idol worship is bad. You know, I mean, there's, there are way more differences than similarities. So if you want to um, come with specifics, I'm just talking about it in a general way here, then I think we can further our conversation on it. But I'm just so often not convinced by those kinds of arguments. There was a whole movement, and part of it is like you have to know the, the history of the last 200 years, or really 300 years. If you know the history of Western civilization for the last 300 years, you understand where all these theories are really coming from. They're coming from uh, an enlightenment skepticism that pervaded Europe and infected Bible scholarship. And there are different responses to that skepticism and criticism. And some of the responses was, if you can't beat them, join them. And that's how we got liberal Christianity. And then you got other people that dig down and say, no, you're wrong. Your criticism's invalid. And that's how you got fundamentalist Christianity 
in the early 20th century, which is not like the F word today. The F word today is a, you know, we don't say the F word today. You know, if you call somebody a fundamentalist, it's like calling their mom a bad name. You know, but in the early 20th century, they called themselves fundamentalists, you know, because it was a positive word, even though now it means somebody that's a jerk and is unreasonable, typically. Is that part of, like, church history, too? Yes. Okay. It's a big part of church history, too. Yeah, the Enlightenment and understanding how... Anyhow, I have a lecture of it online, if you look up uh, Losing Faith, Finnegan. Yeah, it was a morning class. Losing Faith, Sean Finnegan. Uh, I do a lecture talking about how um, basically the world lost faith in the Bible and explain the main players involved in that. All right, so let's, let's go ahead and uh, take our quiz. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.